You're listening to TIP. Over the years, we covered books by multiple billionaires about how to build wealth. Today, we're doing just the opposite. As billionaire Charlie Munger is saying, invert, always invert. I've invited Reeves Wiedemann to talk about his book, Billion Dollar Loser, about the rise and fall of WeWork and co-founder Adam Newman. This is a business thriller like you never heard it. So without further delay, let's hop to it. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Hey, 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 you're listening to The Investor's Podcast, and I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and I'm here with Reeves Wiedemann. First of all, Reeves, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with me here today about your wonderful book. It's a story that the world needs to know. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for saying that. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. So, Reeves, you start your story about Adam Newman, and we work with a quote from his old high school driver instructor saying that either Adam will end up in jail or he'll become a millionaire. With that said, the story of the rise and fall of WeWork is very much also the rise and fall of Adam Newman. So he said to himself, I am WeWork. Who is Adam Newman? Adam Newman is a, grew up in Israel, which is where his driving instructor said that quote. And, and from the early days, you know, Adam was not, you know, I don't know who is a normal teenager, but Adam was different in a lot of ways. He had kind of a disjointed childhood and was at times kind of a, a shy outsider and then at times a very sort of charismatic teenager, which is when that driving instructor noticed these kind of whatever Adam was going to be doing, it was going to be something extreme. It was going to be interesting in some way. He was not going to live sort of a normal life. And to fast forward, Adam got to eventually move to New York City and he wanted to be a millionaire. He wanted to aspire to that dream that had been laid out for him and and tried a bunch of different paths to get there and eventually landed on on one that worked, we work. And, you know, we can talk sort of about how he got there, but that he was sort of the brains and visionary behind this company that grew faster than any company had in size and scope for something like what we work was. And and so he's a complicated figure as as you mentioned. And I think, you know, the reason we started the book with that quote was that there was a lot of good and a lot of bad in Adam and the way that he he ran his his company and and it's hard to separate those two things and it's a very thin line between often between becoming a millionaire and and going to jail and in so many ways that's the case with WeWork where it was a thin line between great success and great failure. Before WeWork, as with so many entrepreneurs, there were other businesses and one of the companies he had was called Crawlers. Crawlers with a K, by the way. What kind of company was that? Crawlers was one of a couple of, of companies Adam started when he was a college student, actually, in New York City. And Crawlers with a K was, was a simple idea. It was baby clothes with knee pads. And uh, Adam, at the time, uh, while he now has five children, he did not have any. He was just kind of a young 20-something bachelor. Had this idea one night with some friends that he should could start a baby clothes company with knee pads so that babies wouldn't hurt their knees when they're crawling uh, on the ground. I think any parent would be able to sort of look back at this and kind of say, it's not really necessary. But for Adam, he was just casting about for any kind of idea 
he could. And, and this is when he latched onto and, and he worked on the baby clothes company for, for a number of years and, and, you know, had some success. Some of the clothes had knee pads, some of them didn't, but, but ultimately it was kind of a silly idea. One like many early entrepreneurs have. This was a wonderful story. Reeves, talk to us, please, about the early days of, of WeWork. How did it happen? So Adam was trying to figure out how to build a successful business and, and the baby clothes company wasn't really working. And so he, in this way, had moved to Brooklyn. He was trying to save money. He was cutting costs and met a guy there, Miguel McKelvey, who was an architect who worked in the same building as him. And they sort of connected. They were both very tall. They were both about six, seven, six, eight. They ended up just talking about ideas together. And one of the ideas that sort of came about was Adam had heard about another person, a friend of a friend he had met, who was running an office space business where it was essentially, you know, renting out a, a space in Manhattan and cutting it up into these kind of little offices. And from there, you know, being able to sort of charge more. And, and so Adam was kind of interested in this idea. Miguel is an architect and had kind of the design background and ability to do this. And, and I think from, from there, they were able to come up with this idea or focus on this, this idea of starting a company like that. And so they, through some sort of real negotiation with their landlord, I mean, this was not an easy sell to get someone to buy into this. They started a, a company called Green Desk. And, and Green Desk was the first iteration of WeWork. It was a great success, kind of very, very early on and, and kind of right away. And then from there, Adam and Miguel both had this dream of trying to start something big and new and on their own without this landlord there kind of overseeing things. And so they sort of went their separate ways and came up with the concept for WeWork and set about trying to find a building. We were talking right after the financial crisis, like a lot of people have been laid off. Like it was the perfect time to start this community feeling. We, we're in this together. It just seemed like the right time, such a microcosm of the time. We can say a, a lot of people doubled down on Adam Newman this point in time. We have Schreibner, uh, one of the, I think, he, I think he counts himself as one of the, one of the co-founders who agreed to a post valuation of $45 million at a time where they more or less had nothing. Uh, they, they had a good idea. He counted for a third of it. I don't think he, he put in all the cash, but he was definitely a very important part of this, this beginning. And, and you had a lot of people doubling down on Adam Newman at this point in time, not just him, perhaps one person more than anyone else. Because at this point in time, Adam Newman has just been on his first date with his later wife, uh, Rebecca Petrol. Could you mm -hmm. please talk to us about the first meeting? It's sort of like an iconic meeting they had. And the role that she would play, uh, not just in Adam's life, but also in the creation of WeWork. The first date is sort of canonical in the mythology of, of WeWork and Adam Newman. He was this kind of playboy, 20-something New Yorker running a baby clothes business, just trying to become rich. And, and he met Rebecca through a friend. And as they, they like to tell over and over again, you know, on their first date, Rebecca told him he was full of shit. And... That he, he didn't have passion in his life. He didn't have, he didn't believe in what he was doing. He didn't believe in his baby clothes business. And so eventually they would talk about this as a sort of foundational moment for, for Adam and how he saw his work and what he wanted to do, that he wanted to do more than just make money. And Rebecca was key in the growth of WeWork in, in several ways. She would fund some of the early days of, of the company by both just by the fact that she came from a wealthy family and, and being able to help with some of the funding. And 
and also connecting Adam to to her circle, her social circle. So sort of instantly and very quickly, Adam was in a circle of people in New York who had money to invest in something like a young real estate company. And so, you know, she was crucial early on. And later on, she would come to play kind of both a role in creating some of the things about WeWork that were great. Some of the the mottos like do what you love and these things that really attracted people to the company. And then in many ways, as you can imagine, with a founder's partner being involved in the business, that produced a lot of problems and, and chaos as well. If anyone's like, doesn't that sound familiar? There is this relationship between her and, and her cousin, Greta Petrol, just in case people mm -hmm. are wondering. So definitely a well, very wealthy family invested around a million dollars at a time where they, they really needed the cash. Let's go to 2011. WeWork has just opened its third location in Manhattan's Meatpacking District. And Adam Newman was already talking about how he was building a $100 billion business. He was, uh, I don't think he's, he's never been shy with his ambitions. And WeWork had this unique startup culture and it's really started to form. One of the things that I really just make me smile whenever I read your, your wonderful book was that whenever WeWork employees joined the company, the role very much required more construction work than the job description typically suggested. Could you talk to us about the culture of WeWork during those early years? Yeah, it was very much a startup. It was very much all hands on deck in good ways and bad ways. I think it was a very exciting place for people to work early on, you know, especially this was an era when a lot of tech startups were coming up. So if you were if you wanted to be a developer or programmer or engineer, there were plenty of opportunities for you to go work at some fast-growing, fast-moving startup doing something cool. WeWork was a place for people who didn't necessarily have those skills. You know, it was a lot of designers, it was a lot of operations kind of people, and it was frankly just a lot of recent college grads who were smart and ambitious and didn't know exactly what they wanted to do, but this sounded like a cool company to work for. So those early days were a lot of you know, nine to five doing your job. And then at night, you're staying in the office, drinking with your friends who are your coworkers, and painting a new WeWork space. It was a lot of kind of all these different things, everyone doing everything kind of all, at, all together. And I think, especially early on, there would be frustrations later. Adam made a lot of promises about how rich everyone was going to get from their stock options and things like that, that obviously didn't pan out. But for a lot of people early on, it was, it was the most fun they'd ever had working at a job. One of the stories I really enjoyed was how he was drinking tequila shots with employees <laughs> and then promising them stock options that never <laughs> materialized. But it seemed like very much like a, let's just call it unique, unique culture. One more thing really to talk about what's unique and what probably most companies do not do. Could you talk about the summer camps? Because they were infamous, special event. Could you please talk to, to our audience about that? Early on, I think around 2012, WeWork started holding these annual summer camps, which were for both employees and people who worked at, at WeWorks, and at least at the beginning. And it was literally a summer camp in upstate New York, a few hours outside of, of New York City. They brought people there to do archery and go swimming and canoeing and do a lot of drinking. And essentially, these became big parties. You know, they were they were meant to be. You know, they were meant to be sort of community bonding events. But in so many ways, community bonding at WeWork meant drinking. There were not a lot of other opportunities for for building community, and that was kind of the default way of doing it. And summer camp was this just sort of the biggest example of that. 
it grew every year that they did it. While early on, it was it was a really fun weekend for everyone. Eventually, for a company that has a lot of liabilities and has a bunch of its employees at a summer camp drinking a lot of alcohol, problems can emerge. And that was certainly the case as, as the event got bigger and bigger and the company got bigger and bigger. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. As I was reading the book, I was trying to envision like how it would look like. I don't think I really understood it before I was watching this Hulu documentary. There's a mm-hmm. wonderful documentary out there, and, and like they have recordings from those events. And, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I don't know, it was a lot crazier than I thought. And I think you explained it's, it pretty well that it was pretty crazy already. It was absolutely madness. Yeah, this was not a quiet company holiday party. This was a, a full-out rager. Right. Let's go to March 1st, 2012. WeWork rented a nightclub, obviously. 
on the Lower East Side called the Box. And and Newman, his vision of WeWork being the first physical social network. And so from a marketing perspective, this sort of made sense because if you are a real estate dude, you could perhaps convince investors to, to value your company at five times revenue. But if you're a tech valuation promising exponential growth, you, know, you could command a much higher valuation. WeWork caught the attention of the reputable Silicon Valley venture capital company, Benchmark. This is a company that previously invested in eBay, and they sort of like saw something there because even though that the sustained revenue growth weren't apparent, which was also the case with eBay in the early days, like they had this really strong community around them. They had to count for something. The benchmark investment became very important for Adam Newman and WeWork. Why was that? It really established the company as a serious player. And, be- and before that, Adam had gotten money from friends, from friends of friends, and wasn't until Benchmark came in and gave sort of its stamp of approval on the company that people had to take it seriously. And, and in particular, had to take it seriously as something other than a real estate company, because Benchmark, as, as you mentioned, was, was a tech investor. They had had this famously great bet on, on eBay, and they were invested in Uber and Snapchat and these kinds of companies. They didn't invest in real estate companies. And, and there was some resistance from the Benchmark side as, is this really the kind of company that we want to invest in? But once they did, it gave WeWork this sense about it that they they were a tech company in some in some ways and and they were if not explicitly a tech company they were part of what at the time was just the booming tech startup industry so i think the money was crucial but just as crucial if not more so for wework was who benchmark was and being able to say that these types of investors were investing in wework we talk a lot about and a new i don't I don't think we more or less have talked about Miguel, you know, his, his co-founder. With this deal, the ownership structure was skewed because Miguel wanted to wanted this deal probably more than Adam. He wasn't really happy about the valuation. And so they made this deal where, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I want to say around $100 million whenever they, they reached that point in terms of valuation, some of the ownership were skewed towards Adam. Also because at this point in time, Miguel sort of like, he saw the writing on, on the wall. He was tying himself to this Adam Newman rocket ship. And even though he wasn't happy about everything that was going on, like he could see where, where this was going like, and who, would, who was driving this ship. Mm-hmm. So I sort of like wanted to, to, to mention that. I think this was a crucial moment where both Adam and Miguel saw virtue in, in the deal in one way or another. But it was a moment where, where Miguel did feel strongly about the deal and doing it and, and was willing to give up some power to his co-founder that would have consequences for, for years to come at WeWork. And let's remember, these are, these are very early days. They, have, they were making very little money. They made a $1.7 million profit in 2012, which was, by the way, the last profitable year in the company's history. So these were early days. It was, it was incredible they could raise that the kind of money. And just, to, just a fun backstory, you know, at this point in time, they had a 16-year-old kid who was director <laughs> of IT. Talk about it being a tech company, right? And so... It was all, mm-hmm. all marketing. It was, it was mm-hmm. just incredible. Let's fast forward to 2014. So WeWork has secured a private post-valuation of $5 billion. And it might be a little surprising to learn that WeWork had only two dozens of spaces producing close to $150 million in, in revenue because a far higher valuation, they had a far higher valuation that, say, International Workplace Group. They brought in $2 billion in revenue. They showed a profit and they had more than two 
thousand locations. So we have a lot of investors out there, and they might be like, "This makes no sense. How can that be worth five billion dollars?" So let me、mm-hmm. throw that over to you, Reeves. What was going on? I think you have to think about WeWork within the broader context of where this was all happening and when this was all happening, and and this was an era where companies were becoming bigger and bigger and bigger very fast, and these were not no longer Sort of companies that were growing slowly and responsibly, like the the sort of ethos of the era was to grow as fast as you could, as big as you could, and once you did that, you could figure out how to make a sustainable business out of it. That was sort of the idea behind WeWork. If we funnel enough money into this company, that they will kind of be able to to grow big enough to sort of figure out a new way of of operating a, a real estate business that allows you to make more money. What actually separated WeWork from from IWG and and other competitors like it? WeWork was cool. It's, it's hard to、right. remember that now. Like it was very cool. They were hip offices. There was something to the energy in these offices in in a lot of ways. You know, an IWG office, the printer is going to work and the coffee will be there, but that's kind of it. It's a boring kind of ho hum space. WeWork took a lot of care to try to cater to younger、um, workers to to make it a cool place to be. That was sort of the what was in theory supposed to separate WeWork and and make it the leader in this was the attention to detail. Whether that justified the valuation, I mean, I think clearly in hindsight it it didn't. But there was just this notion both that if you grow big enough and fast enough, you could figure out a way to kind of connect all these things. And there was a belief in Adam. There was a belief in in him as this kind of entrepreneur、uh, founder who was a visionary and and could kind of make things, you know, out of nothing and do the impossible. And so people wanted to make those kind of bets because when those bets paid off, the rewards were huge. Well said. So much go into the narrative. If we just take another two years here, we're in 2016 here. At this point in time, the wave of funding had, that ballooned since the recession has sort of fallen off. Adam Newman and WeWork at this point in time they burned through a lot of money. They had investors from all over the world:、uh, Israel, New York City, San Francisco, Beijing. At this point in time, because they were burning so much cash, it seemed like the only option was to IPO. Then also open WeWork up to public scrutiny, and both Miguel and Adam Newman wanted to keep the company private as long as possible, which. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But if you knew what was going on, it probably makes even more sense why they wanted to do that. So they were sort of like in this this tricky situation. And then all of a sudden, perhaps the only person in the world who could save the company showed up. Mayoshi Son, founder of SoftBank. A lot of people might know him as as Masa. But for those of us who are unfamiliar with him, could you please introduce Masa and how he eventually invested more than four billion dollars in WeWork? Because this is an interesting guy. Yeah, fascinating guy. Masa is sort of a serial tech investor entrepreneur. He grew up in Japan and had built this large company from scratch by himself. And SoftBank initially was just a company that that sold software and became ultimately the biggest distributor of of computer software in in the eighties in Japan. And eventually, Masa sort of moved into bigger and bigger. Parts of the tech world. He got into broadband internet early on. He got into mobile phones. After that, he made one of the most successful venture capital investments of all time 
which was his, his small investment in Alibaba, which, which paid off in billions and billions of dollars. And so he was just someone who liked taking risks and liked making these big bets, much like Adam Newman. Massa famously in the late 90s during the first tech bubble had both had at one point become the richest man in the world, if you if you look at, at his holdings. And then he promptly lost more net worth than anyone in, in history when the bubble burst and because so much of SoftBank's wealth and his wealth was tied up into these tech stocks. So he was just this kind of person who, who liked to dream big and think big. And that is kind of one of the main reasons that when he met Adam Newman, he and Adam connected in a way that, that Masa liked to connect with the founders that he invested in. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. 
and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. There was a lot of things in this story that really made me smile. And I think that Masa wanted Adam Newman to be crazier and more ambitious. I, I really liked. It takes one to know one. So <laughs> I, I wanted to mention that. But then one funny story is the story about the digital napkin. I'm sure it's going to hit home with our, with our audience. Could you just briefly go over that story? It's, a, it's just a wonderful, wonderful story about these two characters. WeWork and SoftBank had been discussing a potential investment. Masa was at the time investing the, the $100 billion vision fund that he had, had raised. And WeWork was, was a potential bet to place. And the story as it goes, which the account from all sides is that it's true, is is Masa showed up at WeWork headquarters one day for a tour to meet Adam to kind of get a look at what WeWork looks like. It was supposed to be a couple hours long meeting. Masa was late. He actually was ended up meeting with Donald Trump in New York that day, who was the newly elected president of the United States. And by the time Masa got to WeWork headquarters, he, he only had 12 minutes to uh, go on a tour is what he told Adam. It was basically, you got 12 minutes, sell me. They went on a tour. Masa said he had to go, told Adam to join him in his car as he drove to his next meeting. And basically right there on an iPad, they drew up an investment that ended up being $4.4 billion. And those were the numbers that they were talking about right there that Masa and Adam, I mean, that's not a legal document, but it's better than a handshake agreement that, that these two men had come to for $4 billion over half an hour. Wow, that's unbelievable. So Reeves, uh, SoftBank's investment was officially announced in August 2017, and that took WeWork's mm-hmm. valuation from 17 to $20 billion. Perhaps the biggest winner was Adam Newman. Uh, he cashed out $368 million, uh, nearly three times as much as every other WeWork employee was able to cash out combined. Some of that money was earmarked for the more lavish lifestyle than he and Rebecca was living. Something that might sound a little odd, because at the same time, they were talking about living an asset light lifestyle and being hippies living off the land, as Rebecca phrased it. How did the Newmans live? They had a very asset-heavy lifestyle, to point on it. They had at one point seven or eight homes. Employees kept finding out about new homes that they had. They had three different apartments in New York City, two homes in the Hamptons, a couple homes in upstate New York, eventually a, a home in, in San Francisco that was gigantic, so large that it had a particular room that was shaped like a guitar. And they had spent tens of millions of dollars on homes. They had multiple nannies for eventually their five children. In many ways, we work which by the time the Newmans were as wealthy as they were, was, was a giant company with thousands of employees. They ran it a little bit like a family business. You know, Adam convinced the company to buy a $60 million private jet that in theory was for the company's use, but in practice was essentially only used for Adam's travel, work, and, and occasionally personal. In the Newmans case, that the blend there was, was hard to separate. So Adam lived the life of someone who was a billionaire before he, he was actually 
a billionaire in, in part because he thought that's where he was heading. That's such a, such a wonderful story. As you were saying, it was a, let's just call it a somewhat lavish lifestyle. And keep in mind that in 2018, WeWork was on pace to lose almost $2 billion. And it was already running low on cash, despite raising more than $5 billion since 2015, when Newman said that WeWork wouldn't need any more private investment. One of the inventions to manipulate investors, if we can be as candid as that, was to create a new metric that he called community-adjusted EBITDA. So, for instance, in 2017, it turned a loss from $933 million into a profit of $233 million. What is a community-adjusted EBITDA? I never heard that before. It's, it sounds, sounds interesting. Neither had, had anyone else when, when WeWork announced it. Essentially, what community-adjusted EBITDA tried to do was to make the case that when, after WeWork opened a new building, and got it to a point where it was operating as it would, which was a period of sort of 18 months to two years after opening a building, their point was, you need to factor out all the money we're spending on free rent that we're giving to people on to get them into the building, on broader marketing expenses, on, on the construction, on, on things like that, that they argued would go away over time. And so the better way to think about how much money the company was actually making was, was through this metric. There were two problems with it. One, the name was bad. And the name kind of seemed cheeky and, and sort of fed into the notion that this was not a serious company in a lot of ways. And then the other problem with it was that those costs weren't going to go away. Some of them would obviously diminish over time. But, but this was sort of a metric that, that imagined a kind of pie in the sky scenario where the marketing costs of needing to fill a building with, with people were going to just completely disappear at a certain point. And, and that just wasn't the reality of, of the way that WeWork's business worked. Reeves, in April 2019, and this was just a few months before it all came crashing down, you met Adam Newman in person. Whenever you're reading Billion Dollar Loser, it's easy to make fun of his lofty goals. And we also had to remember that the difference between being a visionary leader and a leader having visions that's often just mm-hmm. success. You know, think about if we had Steve Jobs and he was saying everything he did and it, it didn't succeed. Mm-hmm. If we just make that thought experience, keeping that in mind, do you think that Adam Newman was a true believer in his lofty goals? Or whenever you met him, do you instead think that he played like a long con, knowing that he could continue to sell out his shares with each round of funding, making himself a multimillionaire and then turn a billionaire if he just kept up appearances? I think it was a little bit of both. I think Adam believed what he was selling at WeWork. He believed that the, the spaces were communities that made people's days better. He believed that his company was making the world better. He believed that he was making the world better. At the same time, he understood all the reasons why people should be skeptical of, of WeWork. And he was very good at telling an alternate story. He was very good at telling the version of the story where this was something other than a real estate company, where this was a a free coffee and all the cool people and the beer taps were not just decoration, but they were actually part of building something that was, was a new way of thinking about real estate and a new way of thinking about the way that we work. And and he told that story, and I think he believed it. Now, did he believe that his company in, in a rational world was worth as much as as um, some people were were willing to say that it was. I think to some degree he did. To some degree he thought it should be it should be even bigger. 
but he also knew he was selling a story and and would often say that that was the key to to selling WeWork. Let's go to the second week of May here in in 2019. So this is a few days sure. before Uber listed its yes at, at a $70 billion valuation. Goldman Sachs gave its presentation to WeWork with a valuation of $96 billion. At this point in time, they were calling WeWork to be the lead underwriter of this upcoming IPO. Goldman Sachs even had a slide called Your Path to a Trillion Dollars. Then they were comparing WeWork with Salesforce, Alibaba, Google, and Amazon with this ego-boosting modifier, you are scaling faster, which is kind of interesting because this was a real estate company that by definition had a harder time, time scaling. Real estate is already a fragmented industry compared to you know, something like Google, for instance, that's very scalable. But these valuations were much higher than in the latest round where WeWork was valued at $47 billion. An already outrageous valuation considering that it was essentially an agreement between Masser and Adam Newman that both have an incentive to boost the valuation. You know, this was this famous napkin deal, you know, they both wanted mm-hmm. to boost that valuation. So, so in the second week of September 2019, uh, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs told WeWork that the companies had to go public all of a sudden with a valuation closer to $20 billion. And the press wrote about even, even lower valuations. You know, at this point in time, the, the Uber thing really didn't work out, their valuation, like a lot of stuff going on. Before the end of September, Adam Newman's fate was sealed and he had resigned. So bombshell. What happened, Reese, around this time? So many things was going on. It was a lot. It was a complicated storm of things. But I, I think when you look at it, few things happened. And, and basically, things caught up to WeWork. They had been losing money for years. Eventually, they were losing $2 billion a year, as, as you noted. And suddenly, that was a lot of money. And, and you know there were other companies that were losing lots of money and were being given the benefit of the doubt. And maybe WeWork could have survived that. But at the same time that this was happening, the public was learning all about Adam Newman and learning all about the stranger parts of this company and the strange way that, that Masayoshi San was, was propping up the company. All of the stories about the drinking and the partying and the weirder parts of WeWork's business, We Grow, elementary school that they started, We Live, the apartment buildings, the way Adam Newman talked about WeWork as, as an agent that was going to, to change the world. And so all of these things sort of came out in WeWork's S1 document, this document that is eventually released to the public as, as part of any kind of IPO. In that document, all that stuff became clear. And in the coverage about it, there were all these conflicts of interest in the document. Adam and his family, Rebecca as well, were, given, were being given a huge amount of control over the company. And I think that that just kind of gave this impression that, that this company was not serious, that it was not, that it was not actually what it was selling to the world. And the stock market and the major investors who drive the stock market weren't willing to take a risk on it. And when that happened, it became clear to even Adam Newman's biggest backers that the only way forward for the company was without Adam. And he was sort of pushed, basically a, a coup was staged and, and he was pushed out of his own company. Reeves, what was the deal? I know I'm sort of like putting you a bit on the spot here and it's not, we don't need necessarily accurate numbers because I think a lot of it is sort of like unraveling these days as, as we are recording this. This is the, the 9th of July. Some information comes out later, also after the publication of, of if you book, like, what was the deal that he, uh, that he signed whenever he was ousted? 
He signed a deal at the time that was going to allow him to sell roughly a billion dollars of his own stock. In addition, he was going to be able to get some loans paid back, hundreds of millions of dollars of loans that he had taken out. He was going to be paid a $185 million consulting fee for several years, which was particularly galling to a lot of people. And all of this just to get him to leave, to get him to leave his own company. All those amounts have sort of been subject to various sort of legal back and forth over the past past year and a half. And it, it now looks like Adam's going to end up getting about half that, which is is not the billion he thought he was going to get, but is also not nothing. And and I think in that sense, it's it's hard to look at Adam Newman's story as a as a failure. In fact, for him personally, he's he's become wealthier than he he ever could have imagined. So where does this all of this leave Adam Newman today? Mm-hmm. Uh, where does this leave WeWork? Their stories are now obviously connected, but different. And for Adam, he's mostly been laying low. He hasn't really talked publicly about anything since leaving the company. He's been quietly making investments, a lot of them in the real estate world, a lot in the residential real estate world. So he seems to think that that may be the kind of area that he he wants to try to disrupt next. And and I think in a lot of ways, he is just the kind of person who investors are going to be willing to put money behind because he is that sort of ambitious, visionary entrepreneur. For WeWork, pandemic was not great for an office leasing company of any kind. They struggled a lot through this. It did give them a chance to sort of reset things. And the thing they're now pitching to the world is flexibility that, that WeWork offers. It is a company that is what they offer is different kinds of office space in different sizes and shapes. Their bet is that people now, after the pandemic, will want a variety of options, that you may not want your all your employees coming to one central office all the time. Maybe all you need is a couple of WeWorks. So that's the bet they're making. I think it's going to be a hard one to pull off, but that's the one they're going to try to make in our, in our post-pandemic world. Fantastic, Reeves. We started building this here on this show. No surprise, that is the name of the show. There are so many great books that we read and we say, you know, you should do XYZ and this is how this billionaire became successful. We have Charlie Munger, the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, and you know, he talks about invert, always invert. And that was with that mindset, I started reading your book. That's probably not the way you want to, to become a, a billionaire, but you know, it, it <laughs> was- that's fair. Right, right. But it's such an, an amazing story and I'm holding this up to the camera here, which probably works better if you're watching this on YouTube than, than on, <laughs> on a podcast, but a lot of doggies here. This is truly an, an amazing book, a, a fantastic story. And it's one of those things where you sort of like need to, just need to read it to, like, to figure out how crazy this story really is. With all this said, Reeves, thank you so much for speaking with me. Where can the audience learn more about you and Billion Dollar Loser? They can learn about it at billiondollarloserbook.com. The book is available anywhere. It is available for audiobook for anyone who prefers to listen among your listeners. It's available anywhere books are sold. So, um, and, and actually, the, the paperback edition of the book just came out this week. So this is good timing. And I hope the book has lessons for aspiring billionaires to learn from and, and avoid some mistakes. Well said, Reeves. Thank you so much for making time to, to speak with me here today. Thanks, Dick. All right, guys. So before we end up the episode, I wanted to talk about an interesting opportunity to work with us here on TIP. You know, a lot of things has happened since it was just Preston me back in the day doing the podcast. We have more than 50 million downloads now uh, of the main show, 18 people on the team, seven new job openings. So 
bunch of stuff happening, and we would really like for you to join us on this journey. One of the positions I specifically wanted to talk about is the position of the new YouTube host. As a YouTube host working from home, you'll be asked to ideate, strategize, and record native YouTube videos and be a part of both live and online events. Really, as the YouTube host, we expect for you to be the talent. And then we have a small team of designers. We have three designers working on the YouTube project right now. They will do all the creative work around the video. We're looking for someone who has a very entrepreneurial mindset and ambition. We want to grow the audience first and then figure out how to make money next, sort of like what we, what we did here uh, on our podcast too. And if I can just mention one more thing that's very important is that you enjoy learning yourself, but you also enjoy teaching others. That's, that's basically the, the position. When we talk about YouTube hosts, we are talking about someone who can also educate our audience. You can read more about the position at theinvestorspodcast.com slash careers. And if you do get the job, the plan is that you will be trained by me personally here in Denmark the first week of your employment. Please send your application or any questions that you might have to stick at theinvestorspodcast.com. That is stick at theinvestorspodcast.com. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.